It's just been good to be here tonight already, and I'm excited about uh, what's ahead in our evening as well. Let's begin with a prayer, and I'm excited to share some thoughts with you tonight, guide us into our time at the table. Father, we, uh, we come before you tonight, and we thank you for all the gifts that you give. We thank you for the words of life that you give us that we get to share tonight, for the bread and the cup and the ways they unite us in ways the tables in our world uh, rarely are felt, feel that unity, God. So God, may we find unity here so that we might share unity there. May we uh, find a, a sense of who you are, a, a passion for you that allows us to drown out all the passions that seem to drive us throughout our week. God, we want to know you and to know you better and to know you alone to know the goodness of your love. So God, would you be close to us tonight and would our worship be uh, something that, uh, that we give to you, God, but that also drives us forward in our week, the words of these songs. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus and for your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One of the beliefs I have about who God is is that God delights to give good gifts to his children. Anyone say amen to that tonight? That all that we exist on, all that we need for our lives are things that are given to us. And God is the initiator of those good gifts. In fact, you remember Jesus says something about this in the Gospels. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles tonight, I encourage you to, to open them up. Matthew 7 is where I want to just spend a, a moment tonight and then we'll, we'll go some other places. But Matthew 7, Jesus has some words that he talks about God as the Father. And he compares God as father to our experiences at times as uh, fathers. Uh, Those of us who have kids who happen to be dads, maybe moms can relate to this as well. But this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about this idea. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you were evil, thanks Jesus, right, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So that's an easy confession for us to make, that God gives good gifts because we can point all around us to the good things that God offers to us. But there are times in our lives where we begin to doubt that. Aren't there those times? And those times, to me, gather around something Jesus talks about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about worry. And I see these two things as related things, that worry enters into our life, creeps into our life, begins to dominate our lives when we begin to doubt the fact that God the Father actually delights in giving good gifts to His children. And so we tend to take matters into our own hands, don't we? That's what worry is really about, is taking these things on, trying to do something with the worry in our lives that really can't be done anyway. We take matters into our, own home, into our own hands. Let me key in on a phrase, though, in that statement. We take. And tonight I want to spend a little time with that phrase of taking that we find throughout Scripture in some interesting ways. I want to dwell on this word for a bit, this idea of taking. Because we live in a world of takers, don't we? It's not just us. I mean, don't you feel this on a regular basis? Maybe you're, you're a young mom who's dealing with this all the time at home of just taking and taking. It's just part of what it means to be a mom in this season of life. Or, or maybe it's work and what you're dealing with in a certain situation that you feel like you're giving and giving and giving. Everyone's taking from you and not filling you back up in any other way. It could be any number of things that you feel like you're being taken from. But we live in a world of takers. And I don't think it's an accident that half of the Ten Commandments have to do 
with this idea of taking, trying to call us not to take certain things. If you look at the Ten Commandments, one of those Ten Commandments is don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Part of that is uh, that we take God and we manipulate Him into whatever we want Him to do. Often we think about cursing as taking the name of God. But when we live as Christians, people who bear the name of Jesus, and then we live in ways that don't represent God well, in some ways we're taking His name in vain, aren't we? We're bearing this name Christian and we're not living out the sense of who we're called to be, reflecting back the image of God. Do not murder, right? Murder is taking life. Do not commit adultery, taking something from someone who's not yours. Do not steal, again, directly talking about taking something. And then do not covet is this not longing to take things from other people. Five of the Ten Commandments have something to do with this idea of taking. From the very beginning, humans have been takers. And yet from the very beginning, God has not been a taker. God has been a giver. He gives life from the very start of things. And so in Genesis 1, it's the story about a God who has been a giver. A story of God who gives through creation. He gives the breath of life to his creation. He gives beauty. He gives a wife to Adam and similarly a husband for Eve. And he gives a garden, a garden that's full of trees that are full of giving good fruit. You see all throughout the story of Genesis, a God who gives and gives and gives. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like to just... I want out a couple of scriptures here in Genesis chapter 2 that talk about this God who's the good giver of gifts. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gives these good gifts, and then he gives instructions on how those good gifts should be arranged and taken care of, and what we are to partake of, and what might be off limits as well. And so we read on in verse 16, some of his instructions about the gifts that he gives. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to eat from any tree in the garden. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives gifts, and then God gives instructions about how to partake in these wonderful gifts that God has given. And what do humans do in the midst of that? We take. So we have this sense of humans taking, of God giving, and it doesn't turn out well when humans take, as we read on in the story. Because what we begin to believe is that God's not given enough. There must not be enough with all these other trees, and so we're tempted to look at the things that he says not to take of, and we take from those things as well. And so we read on in Genesis 3, verse 6, that story. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. We see that word showing up in the story of the fall, don't we? Eve takes the fruit from the tree. She took some and she ate it. And ever since that day, humans have been taking things from one another, taking things out of order of what God intends for us to take them. Because in some sense, don't we feel like maybe God's withholding some good thing from us? Maybe that's it. Maybe if he's presented these rules of what not to take, we we tend to take those things anyway and we think maybe, just like Eve, there's something out there that would be even better than what he's offered to us, the good gifts he's given. 
And isn't that the temptation in Genesis 3? Eve comes to believe that the off-limits fruit might have something of worth that all the things that God has opened up and given might not provide to her. And we're guilty of the same thing, aren't we? In fact, one great definition of sin that I've I've heard and I I think it's helpful is sin is the habitual pattern of taking things that are meant to be received as a gift. Think about all the things that cause turmoil in our lives or the difficulties in our lives. Often in my life, when I've been involved in sin, it's been that I've been taking things that almost at some point God was going to offer as a gift to me, but taking it outside the boundaries of how he had set that up to be the best way the world would work. So how do we take? We, we do this, right? We, this, this, taking something or taking the fruit, is very different from receiving a gift. Now, I want to talk about the difference between that, that we're, we're takers and yet God is a giver and so the response of humans ought to not be taking from things, but it ought to be a, re- a receiving. If God's the God who delights to give good gifts to his children, then we wait for his perfect timing to give the gifts that he's given. So how do we take? Talking about the taking idea. We, we take for the feeling of intimacy at times, don't we? Certain things we might take out of order of the way God wants because we have this desire to connect with other human beings. And so we take things that we shouldn't. Or we take things for affirmation. Somehow we take something in order to get some kind of accolade or some kind of response from someone else and we take in order to receive that affirmation. Some of us have learned to take, talking about that stealing, taking in order to have security. That we don't trust that God's going to provide. And so in order to, to have security in some way, we take from something in order to kind of heap, heap things up and to, to gather enough so that we might not have to worry uh, that there's enough to go around, not trusting that God is going to provide all that we need. But the truth is we don't have to take anything. And the spiritual journey for us as the people of God is a journey of learning to, or, or unlearning this idea of taking And learning to live in the trust of God where we learn to receive the good gifts that he's received. If you're honest, the sinful act of taking never ends up well, does it? It always ends up in some kind of confusion or in some kind of disruption to the good order of God's creation. But when we receive his gifts, when we pray and God offers those gifts in his timing and in his way, there's a way to enjoy that that cannot be received when we take the things that are God's to give. I mean, if you've ever been around toddlers, you know what the natural thing is, right? Toddlers know instinctively how to take things from others, right? To take toys back, to take this and that. And it doesn't stop as toddlers. This goes on all of our lives. The struggle of unlearning this taking motion and learning to have our hands open to receive. There's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18 I'd like to point our attention to tonight before we go to the table. Matthew 18. I'm going to turn there myself. Jesus illustrates this idea of taking versus receiving. And you may not understand the connection at first, but I want to tie these ideas together. Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. 
But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now this is a story about giving and taking and receiving, isn't it? It's an absurd story on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think I've looked foolish like this before too, haven't you? In the 21st century equivalent, let me kind of uh, bear this out for you. The king forgives the servant 10,000 bags is what it says. The equivalent in modern day would be $4 billion for the amount of gold that's mentioned in that forgiving of the debt. $4 billion with a B. And the servant refuses these coins that he is offered back, refuses to forgive his fellow servant a debt of $5,000. Now think about that for a moment, okay? $4 billion debt and a $5,000 debt. And the obvious question that anyone reading this story would ask is, how could someone not forgive when they've been forgiven so much? How in the world could we not have a heart to forgive others when we feel like so much burden has been released from us? I mean, if you're, if you're paying any attention to the story, isn't this the question that's revealed? What, is there something in my life that I'm not doing this? Why would Jesus tell this story anyway in the first place? But he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and so we ought to pay attention. And I've wondered for years about this, but tonight as I've begun to read more of this story, I think I'm beginning to understand an answer, perhaps, to why this begins to happen in their lives, if I'm reading it correctly. Now, as an outsider of the story, it's clear that the king has forgiven the servant of his debt, right? We can see that from the story. The king seems to say, it's all canceled. It's forgiven. You don't have to worry any more about this. And knowing the grace of God, we can understand the parallel there, right? It's exactly what God's done for us. Incredible debt, and Jesus on the cross paid those sins for us. But I want you to look at the story instead of from our perspective, from the perspective of people who've been forgiven by God. I want you to look at the story from the perspective of the guy who's owed $4 billion, Now, the king has just threatened to take his family, to torture, all these things that are not good, okay? Imagine yourself in that place. You owe $4 billion. What do you do in that moment? You want to protect your family, don't you? You want to do everything you can to make sure you're taken care of, but even more than that, your kids and your your, your husband or wife's taken care of. So your concern is not just for yourself. Your concern is, what do I do? i got to do anything I possibly can to make sure that nothing happens to my family in this situation. And so you start kind of rolling over your mind, what can I offer to the king so that maybe he'll forgive this debt? And the response of the servant is, oh, I will pay back everything. Just give me time. Be patient with me. And I'll be able to pay everything back. And I want you to imagine being in this place where you've, you've given your best offer. I will pay everything back. I'm going to make sure. Just give me patience. Give me what I need. I will pay this off one day. And you're sitting there just waiting for the, the answer to come back. And the response is, forgiven. Well, that's incredible news, isn't it? Have any of you felt that desperate before in a situation? 
You felt like everything was hanging in the balance with the response that someone else has over you. You have no control. Somehow you owe something to someone. There's nothing that can be done. It's going to all depend on them and what they do in response. You'll do anything to save the day. And the servant makes his best move. This is it. I want to read again verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. And I can just imagine, like I said, the servant on his knees, eyes tightly shut, hoping that maybe forgiveness could enter in. And when the king lets him go, the servant is in shock. Can't you imagine? Four billion dollars forgiven. And here's what I think the servant's thinking. It worked. My pitch worked. I offered to pay back everything, and the king said, okay, then your debt's forgiven. And I just have to wonder, in the midst of the joy of that moment, in the midst of the surprise of that moment, maybe he thinks it was the deal that was accepted and not complete forgiveness of debts. And so we look at the rest of the story and we wonder, how could he go off and ask this? Well, if you think that you've made the deal, I'm going to pay back everything. And in this moment that you're free to go, now you've got to do everything you can to secure that money so that you can pay back the owner, the king. So what does he do as a good bookkeeper? He goes back to his books and he tries to discover who is it that owes me money. Maybe I can find this money and begin to have, have an earnest payment so he can see that I'm actually going to work this out over time. And, and so he goes out and he demands this payment, hoping that maybe the king will see, look, he's going he's to pay back all he owes. I'm not sure this guy heard completely that all of it was forgiven. Because the first response is a response of what can I do? And so now if he can get this $5,000, what? He's down to 3999995000 right? Any of your minds work like this? <laughs> like, if I could just take this down five, and then the next week this and this. See, the, the servant no doubt thinks that the king is actually agreeing to his ridiculous offer of repayment. He doesn't understand grace. He understands payback. He grabs the man. You remember this language of taking, right? He grabs the man, demanding this payment back. And why? Because he's beginning the, the repayment process. And it never goes through his mind that what actually happened with the king, the king wipes out his debt, he cancels it all. He forgets that it ever existed as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us, is how the Psalms puts it. This king was willing to end the old game, to cancel the books completely, to overlook all that, to forgive this debt. And yet the bookkeeper's existence depends on a bookkeeping system that he wants to pay back on. And this is what religion can do to people, can't it? So we begin to almost believe that maybe we could pay back the debt that we owe God. We don't believe the deal is actually as good as it is, that Jesus' blood covers everything. And so what do we begin to do? We, we begin to go to church. We begin to check off all these boxes. We make sure communion's taken every week. We do all these things and all these acts of service to think maybe one day God will finally give us... a. A forgiveness that he's already given to us. He's canceled the books. When you walk in and you call Jesus Lord, when you're baptized into his name, when you receive the forgiveness of sins, you don't have to pay back anything. That price has already been paid on the cross. And this is good news. But for those of us who continue to take, I wonder if part of the absurdity of that is that we can't believe the gift's actually that good. Boy, could God really do such a thing? Maybe that's not in his character. But tonight I want to remind us, that is the character of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a God who is pursuing his people over and over again. Not that they deserve this. He's the one who makes covenant and doesn't demand that 
they make covenant return in the story of Abram and the fire. You remember the story of the pot going through the fire? God's the one who commits to things. God, over and over again in the story of Hosea, is the God who pursues his people, who forgives it all, and just wants to start back with relationship in the moment. But the only way you can learn to receive is when you learn to trust the grace of God. And the only way you can stop taking is to open your hands and receive the grace of God. You see, as long as your hands are open, you can receive gifts, generous gifts that the Father wants to give you. But as long as you're taking, it's impossible to continue to receive the gifts He wants to give. Which brings me back to the topic of the series we focused on for the last couple of weeks. Have you noticed our language around communion? I started picking up on this recently as I was asking people about the series. More often than not, what I hear people talk about when they partake in communion is they, we take communion. Just pay attention to the language as you continue to talk with friends and think about your own life. This is the language I've been taught and I've used most as we take communion. But I want to challenge that language because I don't think that's the language that Scripture actually offers to us. The language of taking all throughout Scripture is the language of us taking things that we shouldn't. It's Eve taking the fruit. It's Achan taking the devoted things in Jericho when he shouldn't have taken them. It's the story of David taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba. We know how to take, but I want to suggest tonight that communion is not a time we take. Communion is a time that we receive. And I think there's a very big difference between grasping and trying to hold on to things, trying to earn something back, trying to keep the bookkeeper game going, and a difference of receiving. So tonight I want to invite you to a time of receiving communion. We're going to have an elder and a wife at three tables, a a table up front, a table to this side, and a table in the back. And over the next few songs, what we want to invite you to do is to go to one of those tables, and we want to invite you to receive communion. Now, we're going to do this a little differently than we normally do. We've got leavened bread. I hope that's okay. There's a history of that as well. We could go into another time. But what I'd like to ask you to do is when you, come, when you come to the table tonight, I'd like to ask you instead of taking the bread, which is what we often do, I want to ask if you'd receive the bread. If you'd open your hands and allow the elder who will be there to, to, to give that bread to you. And instead of drinking the cup, we're going to just ask you to dip uh, your bread in the cup. It's a practice that's been practiced for centuries called intinction. Just dip your, dip your bread in the cup and then take of that bread as a remembrance of the good news. But tonight, this is not about taking. I don't want anyone taking communion tonight. I want to invite us to come and to, to, to cancel the ledger, to not be a part of the game anymore, of somehow trying to repay God. But tonight, receive this gift that is communion. Receive this gift that ties us together like we talked about this morning, that unites a people that would never be united otherwise. Uh, not everyone needs to partake if that's not something you want to do tonight, but we invite everyone to come to the table Um, If this is a night where you'd like to share this story with your kids about the Passover and about uh, the table of the Lord, we invite you to come and share with your your family tonight. Do do whatever it is you need tonight to connect with God. If it's singing and praying tonight, that's great. But this time is available for you at the tables that are open. Um, And just ask that you'd come with your hands open to receive tonight. You have several songs, three songs for us to do this, so don't feel like you need to jump up. But if that's something you'd like to do tonight, we'd invite you to the table of the Lord. Let me pray. Uh, as we go to this time of sharing around table. Father, for the times we've taken, we want to ask your forgiveness tonight. For the ways we close our hands trying to somehow pay something back or to grab something so that we can give it back to the king who's already forgiven us everything, it's so presumptuous on our part. 
So tonight, God, for those of us who've committed to you, that you are Lord of our lives, we open our hands again to receive your good gifts, that you are God who delights in giving to your children. So God, we come with open hands to receive this grace tonight. And God, for others of us, this may be something that's new to us. We may not know what communion's all about. We may not have even committed our lives. And maybe tonight's the night we want to have that conversation. We want to maybe consider that, that chance of being baptized, of, of entering into the waters of baptism and dying to ourselves and being raised to new life to share in the meal that people have been involved with for centuries. And God, if that's the case tonight, would you prompt our hearts to do just that? God, we thank you for the openness you have, the way you receive us, the way you prepare tables before us, even in the midst of our enemies. And tonight as we share at table, God, may we look one another in the eyes to enjoy and appreciate this gift that you've given that people have been doing for centuries. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come to the table tonight.